Welcome to a podcast of USA Today Network Tennessee. I'm David Plazas, the Deputy Director of Opinion and Engagement based at the Tennessean in Nashville. Since January 2017, I've been writing a series of columns called The Cost of Growth and Change in Nashville, which examines displacement and the scarcity of affordable housing amid Nashville's growth and prosperity. For May's installment, I decided to look at the issue through the prism of a new thought-provoking book, The New Urban Crisis, How Our Cities Are Increasing Inequality, Deepening Segregation, and Failing the Middle Class, and What We Can Do About It, by famed University of Toronto professor, urbanist, and author Richard Florida. The book was published in April. Florida is known for a variety of books, including Rise of the Creative Class and Flight of the Creative Class. In his new book, he examines winner-takes-all urbanism and how superstar cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York are experiencing growing prosperity while also seeing increasing inequality and socioeconomic segregation. Lipscomb University professor Christine Lalonde and I interviewed Florida on May 19th, and we precisely wanted to examine if Nashville is in an urban crisis. Florida answered that question and also explored with us solutions to create what he calls an inclusive prosperity agenda, where everyone, not just the knowledge workers known as the creative class, can benefit from the prosperity. The latest installment of the series comes out on May 28th, and on June 3rd, Professor Lalonde and I will be hosting a book discussion about the new urban crisis at the Nashville Public Library in downtown. If you have any feedback or questions, email me at dplazas at tennessean.com, D-P-L-A-Z-A-S, or find me on Twitter at David Plazas. Now, on to the interview with Professor Florida. Well, thank you very much. We're so pleased to have Professor Richard Florida, the author of The New Urban Crisis, a new book looking at issues of uh, disparities, prosperity, inequality. And I'm joined here. I'm David Plazas, the Opinion and Engagement Editor for The Tennessean and USA Today Network Tennessee, along with Professor Christine Lalonde of Lipscomb University and George Walker IV, a visual journalist photographer, who is also part of this Cost of Growth in Nashville uh, series team. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Florida, for your time, and uh, congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much, and thank, thank you for having me on the, uh, the podcast. I very much appreciate it. Absolutely. To, to start out uh, looking at a macro level before we get into, into Nashville specifically, uh, you bring up uh, many uh, very fascinating concepts about the, the growing prosperity in these superstar cities paired with growing inequality. Could you describe a little bit about your findings uh, when you were looking at these superstar cities and looking at some other cities too? Oh, it's a long, it's a long story and I tell it in the book, but you know, um, you know, 15 years ago when I wrote the book on the creative class, I think I was very enamored um, with the possibility of a back to the city movement. And if you, if you scroll your mind's eye back to that point, we, we didn't really believe, you know, the talk then was about suburban office parks and creating family, and, and I have a family, creating family-friendly environments, making your tax climate attractive to business. There were very few people who even had a hint that uh, talented knowledge workers, what I call the creative class, businesses were moving back to cities. So, so I wrote that book about the possibility, you know, the wide-eyed possibility of maybe there would be a great comeback if these, you know, um, people who work in technology or the professions or the arts moved back to cities. And I think over the past 15 years, especially as I go around the country and talk about this book and, and meet with urban leaders, city builders, and mayors, I think all of us 
well, I think I underpredicted the extent to which this urban revival would rush upon us. But I think all of us never would have imagined uh, that, you know, not just New York or San Francisco or Boston, but, you know, Nashville. And not just Nashville. I mean, Nashville's a great example. Pittsburgh. Detroit would begin to see a whole renewed uh, set of investments in its urban core and people moving back down there. So I think I was quite surprised. And then, and then you know, um, I think a couple things happened. One is I moved to Toronto about 10 years ago, a, a kind of very progressive, open-minded, tolerant city, very progressive mayor. And, and you know, no sooner I stepped into the city than Toronto elected this infamous crack mayor, uh, mm-hmm. as he actually did crack in office, Rob Ford. And, and, and the reason for that, as became evident, was a divide. There was a divide between kind of what Rob Ford called the urban elite uh, and the people who were out in the suburbs feeling that they were left behind. And of course, you know, when Rob Ford became uh, mayor, I said more and worse would follow, but never expecting our own country to elect Donald Trump, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, and then I think it just became more evident as I looked over the data, the research data, that our country was becoming more divided and as early as 2003, actually, I, I looked at the data and wrote an essay for the Washington Monthly, um, which said, you know, if, if you look at the places that have the most innovative or the most creative economies, they're also the most unequal. But I think it took a little while for even the importance of that, that fact, of that finding to dawn upon me. And then with my research team, um, I really began to dig into these questions of inequality, economic segregation, the decline of the middle class. And it's out of that effort, really trying to understand these new divides, that came my new focus on the connection between innovative, dense, productive metros and, and these terrible, you know, the terrible other side or, or other face or flip side of inequality and segregation and new economic divides. One of the things you mentioned in Chapter 3, City of Elites, is this quote really uh, stung me, being, living here in Nashville. You said, the moment a city starts to lose its artists, things can fall apart and the city might lose its edge. Could we explore that a little bit in the context of what you've been seeing? And also, you know, we can go a little bit deeper to cities like uh, Nashville, like uh, Detroit and others, where there has been this creative energy, yet there is this movement because of the affordability issues, you're driving out your artists. I'm not that worried about Nashville yet. I mean, I think you have, your city and metro area has really, you know, it's funny, Joel Kotkin, my one-time one nemesis and I, uh, who have now become very close friends. We don't agree on everything, but we, 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 we agree on a number of things. We were in Kansas City at an event together. The first time we've really had a conversation jointly, and we are both asked to, to mention uh, places that have come, in this winner-take-all urbanism that you mentioned, but New York and London and, and San Francisco and these big places pulling ahead of the pack. What metro would you point to that has kind of made for a smaller metro and Nashville by no means tiny? Would you point to as a place that's done it? And, and both of us said Nashville. Hmm. So we had a couple of other places that we, Pittsburgh may have been another one, but, but Nashville was one of our very short set. So, and you've done that, of course, by investing in music and seeing if music is part of your economy. In the entertainment economy, but also in the logistics economy, and information economy, and healthcare medical economy. So, and, and, and you have the, the benefits of that. In the book, I, I look at this pretty closely. And, and what I say is even if you look at New York City or Los Angeles, it, it is hard to say 
that their creative edge has been diminished. Now, now what's, what's happened in certain neighborhoods, you know, I quote David Byrne uh, in that big, one of my uh, boyhood idols, you know, I was a huge fan of talking heads. I quote David Byrne saying, you know, if the 1% colonizes the city, I'm out of here. And he's, he's what it says about this edge being dead. And I think you know, that's certainly the case in parts of lower Manhattan. It's certainly the case in Soho or Tribeca. Uh, but it's much less the case in Brooklyn, and it's certainly not the case in Queens. So the point I make in the book is that although I think certain neighborhoods have been dead, as of yet, it is it's hard to see entire metro areas that have had seen their creativity diminished. In fact, I, I, I note this winner-take-all pattern, that it's really less than two dozen metros out of more than 350 that are actually selling at the creative economy. And I think Nashville is far more affordable, and Nashville has benefit by being an affordable option to New York or Los Angeles or other uh, big centers of music or creativity. So I think it's an issue for the future, but I'm not terrified uh, about it happening yet. And I'm certainly not worried that Nashville's creative edge will be diminished. In fact, Nashville is likely to benefit um, from some of the housing affordability problems in other more expensive metros. One of the things that uh, we're looking at when we look at the New Urban Crisis Index are issues of um, economic segregation, uh, wage inequality, um, income inequality, and housing affordability, as you mentioned. And we've been going through some of the stats from you know Bridgeport, Stanford, Norwalk, Connecticut being the number one, and also looking at some of the Tennessee's uh, largest cities. And obviously, we rank, uh, with the exception of Memphis, all the other cities rank toward uh, you know toward either the middle or to the bottom. Um, so the question, the prism that we're looking at this for the next part of this series is, you know, is Nashville in an urban crisis? And it seems to, um, at least from what I've heard from you, but please, please clarify if I, if I heard you incorrectly, that we're not there. We're not at the same level that a Santa Ana Beach or northern New Jersey is. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at my notes, um, which I told you I really wanted to look at. I've, I've built a sheet, not only a spreadsheet, I've built a sheet for every large metro in the country um, about where they fit on the urban crisis. And I have Nashville's sheet in front of me. And here's what I wrote. Nashville has a moderate to potentially severe case of the new urban crisis. It ranks 30th among large metros and 71st among all metros on the new urban crisis index. Now, that's a combined measure of income inequality, wage inequality overall economic segregation by income, by educational level, and by occupation, and housing affordability. But I add, and, and that's much better than New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco. It's, it's not even in the same way. But I do note that it has the 10th highest level among large metros of income segregation and 7th highest level among large metros of wealth segregation. So I think the point I'm trying to make is I think it's a moderate case in the urban crisis you're nowhere near the level of, of the, you know, the crisis that New York or L.A. or San Francisco is in. But a couple of those things, like income segregation and, and this really this walling off effect of the wealthy, you know, uh, which I think is quite pernicious when the wealthy wall themselves off either in urban areas, but I think much more likely in, in these great suburbs that become kind of like a gate that end place. There's a couple of warning indicators that I think at Nashville, Nashville city leaders, business leaders should think about and and you don't you really want to you know i live in toronto and, and someone once said this about toronto and i think it goes doubly for nashville um they said 
you sometimes wish you could be more like London and New York and be a bigger global city. And that's all well and good, but you really don't want the problems that go along with being a New York or a London. And I think that's also true of Nashville, as Nashville becomes a really a, a quite vibrant knowledge and creative and tech hub. It needs to be doubly, doubly committed to ensuring that that it doesn't experience this dramatic surge in inequality, this dramatic surge in economic segregation, this dramatic divide that characterizes the, the leading places. You know, uh, the New York's, the LA's, the San Francisco's on these dimensions. So, so I think there are there are warning signs that you need to be aware of, even if you don't have a very severe crisis right at this moment. So, Dr. Ford, when you say you know that there's these warning signs and that you don't want to go in this direction. So I, th- I think that's a, a conversation a lot of folks are having here and, and worrying about these growing divides and um, the inaccessibility of you know, big parts of the city to most of our residents. So what do we do? And I'm thinking about it in terms as a Nashvilleian um, and you know, as a person making my own decisions. And then as somebody who's involved in the public policy um, sector of the city. So as we watch those trend lines, um, happening, what do we do, particularly given our context of being in a state that is, um, you know, run very, by a very conservative legislature that limits metro government's ability to take certain kinds of actions that you propose in your book. For example, like a, an increased minimum wage, which we cannot do locally because of the context we're in in terms of our state. So what do you see as options within the reality of those kinds of contexts? Well, you know, I could, I could look at that and look at the fact that Donald Trump is president and look at the large red map of the election that confronts us with these tiny little blue specks. And, you know, those blue specks are the most innovative, the most productive, the most knowledge-based, the most economically successful parts of our country. Uh, and I could look at the situation with our state legislatures, which are even redder and more conservative than and the word they use for this, which is preemption. They're trying to preempt a local authority, and they're trying to take control and limit cities and metro areas' ability to do this. But I, I think we just have to engage the good fight. And the good fight that I think is there is no federal policy that will fix our urban areas. Nashville is different than New York. New York is different than L.A. They're both different than Detroit. Detroit is different than Houston. Houston is different than, you know, uh, Chattanooga. I could go on. Mm-hmm. There's no one size fits all. And we have to realize that we live in a geographically very varied country uh, where some places need transit and they need affordable housing and other places want to build more roads and some people have certain values and others don't. And this is what brought Joel Kotkin and I together, two very different people in the wake of the election. I think we've got to work together to empower local areas. And I think you've said it. And I think what's the possibility there, although it, it looks bleak, is that not only are people on the left, Benji Belay, Benjamin Barber, the political theorist, Bruce Katz from Brookings, myself, and many others, calling for devolution of authority from the federal to the states to the global, but many of the best political thinkers on the right, like Yuval Levin, who writes for the National Review, is calling mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, I think that we have to give our cities and communities the tools they need to be successful, but I think on our side, we also have to say we're not going to try to, and that's a hard pill to swallow, that we're not going to try to impose our values on you. If you want it to live a more conservative lifestyle, 
well, you, you want to live a different way than me. I'm not going to try to ram what I think down your throat. And I think just having a mutual respect, whether we want to live urban, rural, suburban, red or blue, I think that's a way across this divide. And, and I do see, you know, when I travel across the country, more and more cities and metro areas, and people say, you know, if you frame it that way, if you say it's not about my way or the highway, it's, it's about we're a big country, uh, we can live the way we want to live, I'm less scared. So I really think the only way out of this divide, you know, half our country is red, half our country is blue, the red part is way bigger, the blue part is way smaller and spikier. I think it's only, the only way we're going to overcome this divide is by respecting our differences and by empowering us. And what's, what's really beautiful about this, and I've been talking to like the most brilliant political theorists, is it's really stupid to have an overly powerful state government and an overly powerful federal government because when it goes bad, it goes really bad. The best way to run a country is to have a whole bunch of really empowered localities and allow those localities to compete on economic grounds, on social grounds, on cultural grounds, and to let people vote with their feet. And, and don't get me wrong, there will still be bad local governments and there'll be corruption and there'll be ones that don't do it right and ones that do it wrong. But this competitive thing and the ability of people to choose where they want to live means that you have a lot better chance of getting good outcomes than bad outcomes if you have just you know, one president in control of everything. So I think that's what we got to do. And, and in Nashville, because you have the state legislature that is kind of retrograde, not only in terms of policy, but in terms of controlling the local area, mm-hmm. um, we have to work doubly hard to try to make sure that, we, that you have the, the powers you need at the local level to build the kind of city you want and that your residents desire. You, you touched on this divide, and it's really interesting that mass media has talked about the urban-rural divide, but you've uh, introduced the suburban divide aspect of it as well. And uh, I was surprised I, I, uh, until I read your book that more than half of people still live in suburbs in America. And we're seeing in the Nashville area some of the, the trends that you've talked about, which is poverty is being pushed out to the suburban areas where there isn't access to transit. And in fact, Nashville does not have a comprehensive transit system, which makes it even more difficult um, than other communities because those commutes have gotten so bad and roads road congestion has gotten so bad. Um, I was really curious about exploring as well this um, dichotomy of the super rich still living or, or very rich still living in the suburbs, but also paired with a growing impoverished population. Uh, and you've mentioned uh, in the book the issues that come with that, you know, the opioid epidemic, the mass shootings, all these other things. I mean, it was just fascinating to explore that as well. Uh, in terms of what you see the future of suburbs and their role in this solution, uh, could you talk about that a little bit, please? Well, more, more Americans still live in suburbs and rural areas than live in urban centers. Um, and and the problems that were associated with the old urban crisis of poverty, of drug addiction, of crime, are now shifting to the suburbs. So in the book, I, I quote the brilliant research of the Brookings Institution folks, you know, there's more poverty in the suburbs than there is in urban areas. There's more concentrated poverty in the suburbs. Poverty is growing faster in the suburbs. In, in a way, the statistic I use is that the top 10% of our income earners have moved back to cities the bottom 10% of our income groups have been pushed out into the suburbs. And so it's no longer rich suburbs surrounding a poor city, but it's not an inversion. You know, there have been some people who've written that there's been a great inversion and the rich people have come back to cities and all the poverty have gone to the suburbs. It's not that either. I call it a patchwork. And I actually think these old terms of cities and suburbs don't work as well as they used to. And, and the way I like to see it is the old urban crisis 
was the decline of the middle class. You know, the, the city I grew up in, York, New Jersey. The middle class left, jobs left, industry moved to the suburbs, middle class people moved to the suburbs, and the city, the city was left a veritable hole in the donut. The new urban crisis, its distinguishing feature is the evisceration of the middle class across city and suburb alike. The statistic I use in the book is 60, two-thirds of Americans lived in um, middle class neighborhoods in 1970, now less than 40% of us do. It, 209 or so of the 230 metros for which data have been collected, the middle class has declined in America. So really what we what we end up with, and I think you see this in Nashville, is areas of concentrated affluence and advantage in the city, but then bleeding, you know, our richest neighborhoods in America are still suburban neighborhoods, not urban neighborhoods, despite all their comeback. And then these small areas of concentrated affluence and advantage being surrounded by much larger spans of poverty and distress and disadvantage. And as you said, when that happens in the suburbs, at least in the urban center, you have access to transit or access to buses or access to social services. If you happen to be poor or drug addicted or need services in the suburbs, you're, you're cut off. Mm-hmm. So, so in many ways in the book, I say the suburban dimension of this new urban crisis is even bigger than the quintessentially urban one. Right. So. On that note, as we have seen more of our poverty pushed out of the urban core and into, um, you know, particularly the southeast part of our county, and, you know, as you know, Nashville is a, a metro government, so we have a county government, more than 500 square miles. I've been really surprised that many of those who work in kind of poverty and justice arenas seem to see treat transportation as this separate issue. I mean, I was recently at a major community organizing meeting and a speaker got up and criticized uh, Mayor Barry's transportation plan as taking away from issues like affordable housing, whereas I think we can certainly argue that they're in, you know, a part of the same solution. So how do you make the case for transportation as an equality or poverty or justice-related issue um, as we see these trends affecting more cities? So I actually think this is the biggest point um, that I try to make in the book and where I think we have an enormous opportunity and why I'm not, even though I see this crisis as very distinct, you know, a crisis is not only a period of, of downer and gloom, it's a period, a crisis is also a period of opportunity. It's, you know, the great saying, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Mm-hmm. In the book, I, I make the case we're moving from a winner-take-all urbanism, you know, where a few cities, Nashville is a winner, a few cities and a few metro areas win, and others fall further behind, and a few neighborhoods within those cities and metro areas win, to, to a new kind of urbanism for all, but let's put a different word on that, inclusive prosperity. And I think the narrative that's coming out of the book, and, and what I find so heartening when I travel, you know, and not just in New York and Los Angeles and D.C., when I go to Indianapolis and Columbus or Philadelphia, and I could go on, Nashville, for sure. The mayors, the heads of anchor institutions like universities and medical centers, real estate developers, are are seeing the need to get over this question of growth versus equity. It's all part of building a new kind of inclusive prosperity where you have growth, where you have innovation, where you have creativity, but it's widely shared. And so what, what are the components of inclusive prosperity? We need more housing and we need more affordable housing and more affordable rental housing. We need better jobs and better low-wage jobs and making low-wage jobs and services and food preparation and hospitality and caring professions 
transit, transit, transit. The only way we're going to connect our disconnected places and our outlying areas, the only way we're going to spur cluster development, the only way we're going to have inclusive prosperity is by investing in transit. But, but we are so siloed. There's the transit people, there's the affordable housing people, there's the community development people, there's the economic development people. And I think the real message of this book is if my previous book, The Rise of the Creative Class, tried to build a narrative on why the urban revival was important, this book supplements that narrative and says, left alone, the urban revival will generate exclusionary benefits. The much better path is to actually harness the urban revival and have it work for you. And the way to do that is by linking your growth agenda and your competitiveness agenda and your prosperity agenda with an equity and inclusion agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and if you do those things together, you're going to get a level of inclusive prosperity. The middle class will grow again. Uh, people will be more content and happier, and you won't have these horrible divides that we seem to be creating. Now, to, to be candid about this, this is a long-term prospect. And when I look back, you know, I wrote Rise of the Creative Class in 2002, which means I started working on it in the mid-1990s. It's taken 20 years, really, for people to understand how to create competitive, knowledge-based, innovative, revived cities. It's probably going to take another 10 or 15 years till we equip our cities to understand how to build inclusive prosperity. But my great hope is if we could revive cities in the first place, and again, not just Nashville, if Detroit and Cleveland and Pittsburgh are beginning to come back, if we could get that part done, now spreading those benefits, including people, creating the connective fiber and the transit, the affordable housing, that's actually, it seems daunting, but it's actually an easier thing to do over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, we put our mind to it, than getting them revived in the first place. So I understand it's a big challenge. I'm realistic. I'm cautiously optimistic about it, cautiously, realistically optimistic. But I think what I'm hearing in my travels around the country is that lots of people at the local level are wanting to throw in to make this happen. You dedicate uh, one chapter completely to gentrification, and I found this fascinating because the term gentrification has been thrown out on numerous occasions and sometimes without context, and it's become a four-letter word for some parts of our, our community as Nashville has grown. Uh, you quoted uh, Lance Freeman of Columbia University saying, direct displacement of poor residents by wealthy gentrifiers is more based on myth than reality, and uh, Doug Massey of Princeton saying, gentrification is a drop in the bucket. Could you go over just the definitions of gentrification again, because there there is sometimes a perception in our urban areas especially that everything is being gentrified. You explain, of course, that the part of it is the back to the city movement where higher income people are driving up these housing prices, uh, but direct displacement is mainly affecting the renters. But if we could if we could talk about that a little bit, please. Well, we, we all have this image in our minds of some rich person or some big luxury condo tower coming in and it's pushing out, you know, the artists the Bohemians, the low-income people, um, the minority communities that lived in. And that happens. Don't get me wrong, that has clearly happened in Soho. That has clearly happened in parts of Chelsea and New York. That has clearly happened in in parts of Brooklyn. But the level of happening is, is very rare. Typically, the way gentrification takes place is it happens in old industrial areas where there's nobody, very few people to begin with, and where developers can acquire warehouse logs and old buildings and build new. Or it happens in white working class neighborhoods where lots of people own their homes and are able to sell those homes at a premium and, and move elsewhere. But the tragic fact is, 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 is that in fact, gentrification has only occurred in maybe five to 
10% of neighborhoods, urban neighborhoods across the country. The tragic fact is there are far more areas in our urban areas that remain desperately disadvantaged and horrifyingly poor. And this is what that chapter tries to tease out. You know, one study that I quote by a brilliant sociologist named Rob Sampson at Harvard, he looked at the, the role of race in gentrification, and he found this. That once a neighborhood gets to be about 40 or 45% black, it tends to be impervious to gentrification. Now again, someone will say, but look at Har the Harlem picture, or look at Bedford Fox Stuyvesant. There are examples, one-offs, black neighborhoods that have been completely remade uh, by gentrification and people displaced. But on balance, those are very few and far between. The much more likely outcome is that a historically low-income black neighborhood that was poor before is even poorer today. So, so the point I want to make in the book is that it's, it's this endemic urban poverty. It's this endemic inequality. And, you know, in the book I point out, inequality rises as the city gets larger, as the city gets denser, as the city gets more knowledge-based, as it gets more educated, as it gets more innovative and creative. And even worse, segregation. You know, inequality is bad. Segregation is far worse. Because in a segregated metropolitan area, you're not just equal. People live in separate universes. They have access to some have access to good schools, some have access to terrible schools. Some have access to transit, others have access to no transit. Some have access to better networks and amenities for themselves and their kids, others have none. So in a segregated, you almost have a kind of apartheid, if you will, a 21st century apartheid. And again, what are the places that are most segregated economically, the most, the largest, the densest, the most innovative, the most knowledge-based? So in a sense, we have these, this, I say, this economic urban revival is Janice space. The same things that bring us innovation and, and economic growth bring us higher levels of inequality and segregation. And I think those are the big gentrification is a hot button issue. It's an emotional issue. Everyone gets vexed about it. We get, uh, well, lots of people get guilty. Am I a gentrifier? Oh my God, did I destroy a neighborhood? But, but in reality, a much bigger problem is the divides in our society and really, really the segmentation between the less than third of us that are doing well and the 66% of Americans that are falling behind as our middle class is eviscerated. Mm -hmm. So I know that, um, I'm thinking about the words eviscerated, and I'm going to try to turn it to something a little more positive, perhaps. So you travel so much to other cities all over the world. You live in Toronto. And I'm curious kind of what cool work you're seeing um, in your city, in Toronto, elsewhere, that that cities like Nashville should think about adopting? You know, what's giving you hope these days in very dark times? Well, I, th I think, first of all, many people are looking at you. So don't sell yourself short. I, I've already said when asked on stage in Kansas City, where would we look, uh, Richard Florida and Joel Kotkin, for a city that is building an innovative and creative economy that is not terribly unequal, that you can still afford to live in, we'll take a look at Nashville. So, so I think don't sell yourself short. That you've obviously done a lot of things to build your economy, right? You're you're one of the smaller team size, you know, not superstars that have made this jump into the creative and knowledge economy, and you've done it without creating gaping inequality, gaping segregation. Um, Toronto suffers from worse problems than Nashville. It has much higher levels of inequality. The, the median price, folks, for a detached single-family home and this is like a two-story walk-up that's falling apart, is 1.5 million Canadian dollars. So just think about that for a minute. You know, that's what's the reality of Toronto. Now, in Toronto, we have a very interesting 
premier, of our governor. Um, she's now working with the person who was very close to her, Mary Rowe. She's just announced a very interesting inclusive prosperity agenda, uh, building high-speed rail to connect decaying parts of our province near Detroit, uh, to vibrant parts of our province near Toronto, a massive program to build more housing, to build more affordable housing, a whole labor law to make low-wage jobs better, that minimum wages are high, especially women and minorities who work in the caring professions, their jobs are upgraded. Um, all around, friend of the Bill Peduto, not only helping to reposition Pittsburgh around self-driving cars and university research rather than steel, but developing an inclusive Oh, are you still with us, Dr. Florida? Are you yes. Still? Okay, you, you uh, just uh, went out, you, you were talking about Pittsburgh, and then you, you cut out for a moment. Oh, I was saying in, in Pittsburgh, where the mayor, Bill Peduto, uh, has not only helped reposition that city away from steel and around knowledge and self-driving cars, but it's pursuing an inclusive innovation agenda, where that innovation agenda that benefits many more people in many more neighborhoods. In Philadelphia, where I just was, in a city like Nashville that has completely rebuilt its urban center and urban core that is teeming with energy. You know, I was talking with the heads of the universities and the so-called anchor institutions. They are committing now to, to focusing on an inclusive prosperity agenda. What can the universities, the medical centers, the hospitals do to make sure that everyone participates and benefits from this new prosperity? So I think we're at the beginning of a movement of understanding that the next generation of, of urban development is not simply about urban revival and about the urban revival of the privileged third. It's really about building a more a, a more general creative prosperity, and that is happening locally. I, I want to echo this. It's not happening nationally. We're, we're engaged in this horrifying and distressing divide. It's not helping it. It's happening much at the state level in America, where the states are trying to squash urban creativity and problem solving. It's coming bottom up from the local level. We have to magnify those efforts and we have to help make, give, give city leaders, mayors, urban leaders, neighborhood builders, community builders, the tools they need to more effectively embrace inclusive prosperity in their communities. You, you'd mentioned, and I've heard in uh, numerous interviews that you've done, that uh, you rewrote your book uh, after the election results came out. And uh, one of the things that you touched on, especially toward the end, was the issue of the housing and urban development budget. Uh, the proposal we initially saw was a, just a, a drastic slashing of um, of resources to uh, community building projects, uh, even though rental assistance for now seems to be secure, we don't know in the future, and that may affect those uh, people who are, who are right now dependent on public housing. And um, do you see, how do you see cities being a catalyst for addressing the shortfalls if the federal government goes forward with these drastic cuts? I think we can rest assured that the federal government is going to make drastic cuts in everything from housing and urban development to that National Science Foundation to the Environmental Protection Agency to all of it. I mean, uh, this is an extremist program. And in many ways, in many ways, it's an anti-urban program because the urban centers are the ones who voted against the current regime. Uh, look, we, we have to understand that we're going to have to do this ourselves. That was my big weight, that there will be no federal program for cities and urban areas. And in truth, there hasn't been one. Um, you know, over the course of my life, the federal commitment to the cities has dwindled. Uh, so, so it's really 
working hard to get the states out of the way, to get the federal government out of the way, to enable, you know, our cities and urban areas to pay a lot of money in federal taxes. Republicans like to cut taxes, let cities keep some of their own tax money and use that for the programs they want. But, but moreover, I think it means really figuring out the local solutions to these kinds of problems and working with these anchor institutions, the big hospitals, the big universities, the big real estate developers that want to build these, you know, Council. I was a uh, represented a neighborhood, so that's our governing body for the county, and um, represented a very progressive university neighborhood. Um, and e- even if the state and feds got out of the way, you deal with your own stuff, particularly on zoning and neighborhood issues. And one of the arguments that you make on page 28 of your book, and it's really, I mean, that's just a summary of an argument that's throughout, is that, you know, arguing for a reformed land use system, um, you know, a shift from single family homes to rental housing, kind of for density and clustering. And and I have to say my very liberal, progressive, educated neighborhood um, was fighting against that all the time. And um, I was constantly at odds with my neighborhood. It's one of the reasons I didn't run for re-election. And um, so I'm just curious about that aspect too that I mean I see the apartment buildings going up in the city and I'm thrilled because it's the only way we're going to have transit it's the only way that the city can work as we grow but we still have folks who are trying to get rid of even just duplexes in neighborhoods um, because they don't want to move away from this single family um, you know bungalow style house which i'll admit i live in one of those so maybe i'm shutting the door behind myself but i'm just curious about how you've seen this work out these ideas on land reform and reality in neighborhoods that often don't want to see that change um well in in the book i say we face two backlashes we face a backlash from the right because our we have this great geographic inequality between the thriving places and the left behind populism. 
kind of backlash from the left, which people call NIMBYism, not my backyard syndrome, but I call it the new urban Luddites. The people mm-hmm. who say no to density, no to zoning reform, no to bigger buildings, taller buildings. I want to keep it the way it was. I call them the new urban Luddites. They're the equivalent of the Luddites, you know, who were in England smashing the machines because they, did, they thought the machines were going to take their job away. They were holding back the innovation of the Industrial Revolution. The new urban Luddites are holding back the innovation and economic prosperity of like towns and cities. Uh, so look, it's a big issue, and, and it goes further than this. I, I think that universities and university areas have been involved in the new urban crisis, and, and I've heard I've had university leaders tell me they've come to believe this. That if I, if I look at the places that have the highest rates of the new urban crisis, they're not just big cities like New York and San Francisco. They're college towns like Ann Arbor or Boulder or Madison. The college towns have some of the highest levels of housing unaffordability and economic segregation of all. So when talented people cluster around a university and advantage people build up the neighborhood, that creates all the problems that are part of the new urban crisis. And I think we've got to come to the recognition that we are part of the problem. Uh, I'm a professor. I work in a university. The universities have a responsibility to engage in inclusive development, to make sure not just their faculty and their students and their buildings are better, but the neighborhoods they're locating can participate in hospitals and medical centers and in and, and, and all of these districts. So I think it's a conversation we need to have. And while I feel heartened, why I feel heartened is because there are so many people who run these institutions, these anchor institutions, who are ready to embrace this kind of change because they know they have to. They know that in a society that's winner-take-all, uh, in where prosperity and, and, and economic growth is the privilege, uh, is the you know benefiting of privilege to do, that that's not going to make it. Then we, we can do better, uh, and we can get overcome these backlashes. So, so that's why I'm heartened, but we've got to make the case for it, and we've got to get to do it now. Thank you.